Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We're back after a week off, and we've got plenty to discuss today. President Biden's deadline for withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan is tomorrow, Tuesday, August 31st. The run-up to that deadline has involved a chaotic effort to try to evacuate Americans and Afghan allies from the country. And the Biden administration has weathered some pretty heavy criticism for how the withdrawal effort has been conducted from Republicans, the media, and to some extent, Democrats. As the U.S. officially leaves Afghanistan, we're going to talk to a historian about how we got to this moment and what might come next. We're also going to look at how Americans are reacting. Biden began this month with a net approval rating about nine points above water. Significantly more Americans approved of the job he was doing as president than disapproved. He's closing out the month basically even between the number of Americans who approve and disapprove. So how much of that decline has to do with the Afghanistan withdrawal? Here with me to discuss all of this is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And also here with us for our first segment is history professor at Stanford University, Robert Cruz, whose research focuses on Afghanistan and Central Asia. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much for having me. So let's dive into the historical context surrounding tomorrow and where we are right now in Afghanistan. So if everything goes to plan, the U.S. will officially end a nearly 20-year-long war in Afghanistan tomorrow, the United States' longest war. Like when the U.S. invaded in 2001, the U.S. is leaving with the Taliban in power. I want to get a sense of what's happened over those past 20 years. So, Robert, can you just give us a sense of what is the Taliban, and is it the same thing today that it was 20 years ago when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan? The Taliban movement emerged out of what we might call Afghanistan's long civil war, which began arguably in around 1978 and persists to the present. They emerged out of a moment when the Soviets had withdrawn and various parties, some of whom we'd backed against the Soviet Union, fought among themselves for control of Afghanistan. So they emerged in a geographic area that is crucial for understanding you know, where they come from and what they want. They came out of the south, out of largely the province of Kandahar. But importantly, their membership drew upon transborder ties. So they have also strong historic and political roots in Pakistan. So to sum this up very briefly, they are a cleric-led movement. They take on the name of Taliban, which just means students in Pashto and, and Dari. So they present themselves in 1994 in the province of Kandahar as a force for Islamic justice, for morality, for the reimposition of order and morality in a context in which there are various parties fighting for control of this territory. So importantly, they've always claimed to represent Islam, they claim to represent a kind of rural vision rooted in the South among a large ethnic group, the Pashtuns. And importantly, they have drawn upon a geopolitical context in which the Pakistani elite, the security elite, has wanted to, for its own purposes, decide who rules Kabul. Over this 20-year period, what's remarkable is that they have adapted their strategy, their rhetoric, their politics in important ways. But fundamentally, I think what is most salient for us now looking at this from the vantage point of August 2021 on the, on the verge of 9-11, is that fundamentally they are ruling in a way that is very much as we left them in 2001. That is, they want to enact a kind of gender apartheid. They want to primarily police public morality. They do not yet have a vision for statehood and, and are unlikely to develop one. They remain reliant upon Pakistan, 
all this has changed now so that we have a larger constellation of international actors who are prepared to support them. But fundamentally, I think the important thing to hear from Afghans, I think they're demonstrating this understanding by voting with their feet, not only at the Hamid Karzai International Airport, but also if you follow the border crossings in Pakistan and Iran, that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Afghans, and very soon perhaps several million Afghans will attempt to flee their rule. So I think the Taliban have demonstrated important continuity in terms of their ideology. If you look at their appointments to date, in terms of ministries, government positions, these are all senior clerics who bear the title of mullah. They've spoken about an inclusive government that has not come to pass, and they have wholly disregarded all the women who have transformed the society in the last 20 years. So it is, for those of us who've been watching this for some two decades, it is a, a, an odd sensation of, of deja vu. And I know many Afghans are asking, you know, what happened to these last two decades? What was the meaning of it all? Why did we sacrifice so much? Why did so many of us die? Why did 66,000 Afghan soldiers die for this cause when we seem to be back where we began two decades ago? This is something that we've mulled over in the national media and in our politics over the past couple of weeks. But given your background in the region, why were the Taliban able to take over the country again so quickly? That's a, a, a very important question. It's something that I think we'll be debating for years to come. As I see it, I think there are two factors to consider in tandem. One is the position of the Afghan state that the US largely installed in December 2001. Uh, and then look at the adaptability of the Taliban movement itself. So I think we have to look at both in a kind of mutual interaction, in kind of a dynamic interdependency. The Taliban grew in strength as American forces killed Afghan civilians in the countryside. So the American counterterrorism and then counterinsurgency campaign continued to enable the Taliban to re-establish their ranks, essentially to regrow in the countryside as we bombed villages, as we conducted night raids, as we sent people to Guantanamo, as we unfortunately tortured people at Bagram Air Base, this fed the insurgency from below. At the same time, its leadership always had a safe haven in Pakistan. So that factor, that kind of transnational character of this is fundamental. The Afghan state also played a major role in this because fundamentally from the beginning, they had a major weakness, and that was the appearance that they'd been put in place by the United States. And so as one of my brilliant PhD candidates here, who's from Afghanistan, noted that in his understanding of the last 20 years, there was no single organic Afghan leader that emerged out of this conjuncture of interests between the United States and Kabul. And so initially Hamid Karzai, and then later Ashraf Ghani, were viewed by so many Afghans as being alien in some sense. They'd spent numerous years in the United States. They clearly relied upon American security officials to even maintain their, their safety for many, many years. And they operated in a world that seemed to be alien to and removed from and uninterested in Afghan life. So despite all the money, despite all the international attention, the Afghan elite, of course, bears important responsibility for the outcome. So it's a 20-year story. But if we zoom in just in the last 12 to 18 months, the story of the Taliban blitzkrieg or house country reflects a very sophisticated intelligence apparatus that the Taliban employed. They knew who to assassinate in each district. They knew how to shut down much of Kabul at key periods. They knew whose homes to visit to kill an Afghan Air Force pilot. Part of the story here is of just a, a sophisticated kind of ground game, we might call it in the American context, in a way that paved the ground for their march across the country. At the very same time that the government of Ashraf Ghani found itself more and more alienated from 
an Afghan public that grew more and more critical in the last two years that felt alienated on grounds of class because of the unemployment crisis, on the grounds of ethnicity because many Ghani of playing ethnic favorites. They found him unable to really stand up to, for example, Donald Trump's increased airstrikes, which took a number of civilian lives. So it looked as if, I mean, there's been a long trope about the leader city in Kabul being a puppet of foreigners. And this is an idea that really robbed the state of a lot of legitimacy. And Ashraf Ghani never escaped that trap. So I have one more question here, and then I want to open this up for Sarah and Nathaniel to ask any questions they have. Is there any kind of political majority in Afghanistan today that is backing the Taliban? Is there an alternative that people want? What does the political landscape look like? That's a, a brilliant question and really one that hasn't received enough attention. I would say if we begin at 2001, you know, this is a story that's been destroyed by ongoing war since 1978-1979. The United States brought back into power a collection of diaspora Afghans, mostly from the United States, but they also relied upon local commanders who many criticize as, as warlords. So the U.S. helped create a political landscape that was very limited in terms of creating a state, in terms of popular legitimacy, in terms of enacting a vision of, of modern politics with respect for human rights and so on. So that was a kind of starting point. But very importantly, over the last two decades, a very different kind of politics has emerged in Afghanistan. And I wouldn't credit the United States for doing this. It did create a kind of space for this. But really, this was the work of principally young people, of Afghan men and women who sought university educations across the world, who used new media to force new debates. So television became very important. Radio had always been key, but television became much more important via satellite. Dozens of new channels emerged. My colleague, Wajma Osman, has written a brilliant book on Afghan television as really the crucial site of Afghan politics, certainly in the last decade or so. Social media became very much a thing with the use of cheap, popular phones there. And that's not to say that Afghans wanted what people in St. Louis or Washington or Berlin want, but they developed a politics that was very pluralistic. So on one end, we see people who are Islamists, but I'd point out that this included some female activists who wanted a kind of Islamist politics that included women. So it's a kind of Islamist feminism. And at the other end of the spectrum, just to imagine an entire range, you have people who were, who were leftists, people who were secularists, people who were even atheists who believed in a radically different kind of social democracy. So they really, in the last few years, we've seen every kind of political ideology emerge in Afghanistan. In the last year or two, many of these groups began to identify themselves as the Republic. And they pitted the Republic against this old force, the Emirate, the Islamic Emirate of the Taliban, which is how they identify their state in waiting. So this vision of the Republic versus the Emirate, I think, dominated debates in the last year or so. And that left the Kabul government kind of out of the picture because its base of support shrank and shrank. But about Taliban support, this is so hard to measure for someone like me who, who's far away. I think we can find important journalistic accounts that note that if you go to villages where, for example, local communities suffered from American drone strikes or air raids or from special forces raids by the Afghan government, you find people who lost fathers, sons, daughters. That was one major force that pushed people into the ranks of the Taliban. Does that mean they're popular? Not always. I mean, the Taliban is actually a heterogeneous collection of different actors who have this common interest in defeating the government in Kabul and in expelling the Americans. But that means that lots of people can get on board for different reasons. And, and crucially, they've had support from Pakistan and in more recent years also from Iran. 
But if one goes to the cities in Afghanistan, there is no appetite for Taliban rule. In fact, I mean, what I hear again and again from my colleagues and friends and interlocutors is that their enorm- enormous sense of betrayal is due to the fact that they didn't have a say in the Taliban takeover. They blame Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. Special Representative, who signed Trump's deal with the Taliban in February of 2020 in Doha, Qatar. They blame Biden. And of course, they blame Ashraf Ghani for fleeing the country. So the social base of the Taliban is hard to analyze and to quantify. They enjoy popularity among very conservative circles. They enjoy popularity among some ethno-nationalist Pashtun activist types. And in some places, I think in some rural areas, there is a kind of acceptance of the Taliban because they offer security, they offer justice. They very carefully manufactured a reputation for being above partisan politics, above the politics of clan or genealogical descent. So their ranks are often internally diverse in terms of tribal ethnic affiliations. And they, they claim to rule in the name of Islam in a way that oversees all the local and national social divisions that have really been behind so much strife for the last 40 years. But of course, Afghan society is, is entirely different now. And the question I think many of us are watching to see is, how can they rule a society that's grown far more complex, whose politics are far more pluralistic, where women, again, have played a fundamental role in shaping political debate. They've been enormously important in the media, in university life. Probably the, the most important human rights figures in the country who have the most moral standing are, in fact, women. So what would they do with this changed society? Many of these men have not been to Kabul in 30 or 40 years. Uh, some of the younger people have never been to Kabul. And again, they've never been to Herat. They've never been to Mazar Sharif. Many have not even been to Kandahar. So part of the story is kind of an urban-rural confrontation. It's really a clash of different ideologies and worlds. And yet the Taliban are incredibly sophisticated in their own way in terms of a remarkably successful guerrilla campaign that defeated the Americans. But I would stop at that and say they defeated the Americans, but it wasn't foretold that they would defeat the Afghan government. And that's where I think the broader American role, the international alignment of actors was essential in pushing the Taliban forward and really pulling the rug out from under the Afghan government. I know Sarah and Nathaniel have some questions for you as well, which I want to get into. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. We've gotten some good background here on the political context within Afghanistan. I know we also have questions about whether there are new terrorist groups and what the situation is going to be on the ground going forward. So Sarah Nathaniel, jump in here. 
One question I had, given what you were saying about the unpopularity of the Taliban, was how ISIS-K could fit into the region. I'm thinking, you know, they claimed responsibility for the attack last week that had killed dozens of Afghans and at least 13 American troops. Is there an opportunity, given the chaos that's currently present in Afghanistan, for there to be more fighting between the Taliban and then ISIS? There certainly is. We've seen that since 2014, 2015. We've seen the Americans actually align themselves with the Taliban in a few encounters with Islamic State representatives. And obviously, they're able to stop Kabul. I mean, they're able to paralyze public life. The United States has painted itself into a very vulnerable position. And of course, they can shut down the airport. They can wreak all kinds of havoc. And they can also undermine Taliban rule to an extent. They are made up of communities of fighters who are actually ideologically close to the Taliban. And many Afghans will tell us that, you know, from their point of view, there is no difference. And I've heard very smart Afghans, very well-informed Afghans say, essentially Islamic State is a myth. They are just an alternative face for the Taliban. And that they're actually working in tandem and that they share the same agenda and that they are all determined to crush Afghan civil society, the kind of republic that I described a moment ago. Other experts tell us that this is a collection of people who are disaffected from Taliban rule, people who were once of the Taliban who've now migrated to a group that they found to be more fitting for their ideological positions, more radical in terms of targeting civilians, more sectarian, and that they have been responsible for attacks on Afghan Shi'i communities in Kabul, you may recall, attacks on hospitals and on girls' schools and on religious processions. Those tended to happen in one neighborhood in Kabul in the West, where there are many Hazara inhabitants, many residents of, of the city who are Hazara live there. We also learn from other accounts of, of ISIS, Khorasan, in Afghanistan, that they are quite multinational, that they draw from a now defunct Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, that they draw a number of Pakistanis. I think a Malaysian was supposedly killed last week. They draw upon a more international profile. So I'm a bit agnostic about how actually to define Islamic State, Khorasan province, because I think it is so elusive. But I would note that it's a useful actor for a lot of different parties, because the Taliban can say, listen, we stand between the world and Islamic State, Khorasan. Moscow has said, Putin has said again and again, that we can work with the Taliban because they are a break against Islamic State, Khorasan. So it's an amorphous body of fighters who could be, as described by some of my colleagues, they could be a multinational collection of Islamic State-inspired terrorists who are going to play a major role in Afghanistan's future. But they could also be a boogeyman who is part of a broader PR effort to make the Taliban look like they're a new kind of more moderate, more acceptable version of themselves who deserve international recognition and thus deserve all the aid that comes with that, that deserves the United Nations seat. And if the Taliban get that, they can be confident that the game is over that any resistance that might appear in the Panjshir Valley is finished and illegitimate. Any kind of civil society action that we see that may come out of the republic that I described, that can be cast as being terrorist or Islamic State or something. So international recognition is a key to the Taliban solidifying and consolidating their rule. I think without going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, it's worth asking which interests it serves to see it as the imminent threat in Afghanistan today. Because for Moscow, and I think maybe for Beijing, maybe for Tehran, for Islamabad, 
the Taliban can be cast in a very different light if we see them as the last bulwark against Islamic State. One thing that I was struck in, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about Americans' attitudes toward the war in Afghanistan most broadly. And one question really stood out at me. It was a YouGov question that asked whether the war in Afghanistan had made life better for Afghans, worse for Afghans, or neither. And Americans really didn't know what to do with this question. So 26% thought that the war may have made life better. 23% thought it made life worse. 27% thought neither better nor worse. And 24% didn't know. And so since we have an expert right here, I just wanted to basically get your opinion. Over the last 20 years, do you think that overall the net impact of the American invasion war was good for Afghans or bad or neither? That's a very challenging question. <laughs> Thank you, Nathaniel. It's uh, not easy to, to answer at all. It, it depends. It depends upon your position in Afghan society and how the war affected you directly. It depends on your age, your gender, your community background. All those are important factors. I mean, as someone who was against the war, and you know, this dates me in terms of my age, of course, but my first job was at American University, and there was a kind of a teach-in one of my first weeks on the job. And I spoke out against the attack on Afghanistan after 9-11. And I remember the chair of my department was frowning at me <laughs> because this was not a popular position. So having laid out that context, obviously people had their whole families wiped out by American or Afghan state attacks on their communities. So the war against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban orphaned tens of thousands of children. People suffered torture. People suffered all kinds of abuse at the hands of people backed by Washington. That's important to put into the calculus. But I also recognize, like many of us who have been studying the region, we're, we're being bombarded by requests from friends and colleagues and strangers to help them escape now. And so I have a small Rolodex of, of ID cards, of passports, from mostly younger people who see the last 20 years just washed away by decisions that they had no say over that were made in Washington by Biden, by Khalilzad. And of course, that was building upon the Trump administration's decisions by Ashraf Ghani, by a very unaccountable elite. But these are people who went to, went to university. They dreamed of becoming doctors and lawyers, or, and some just you know, wanted to provide to their families. A number of my friends are belong to the Hazara community, and they fear genocide. So I know we've had a debate in this country about, about the US, about whether it was good or bad to follow Biden's plan. No one wants a forever occupation. No one wants forever war. But I know people who realistically face the real threat of, of genocide now. And so I'm very torn and I don't want a forever war, but I think we have to really have a conversation about what we owe Afghans by using this terrain for our international ambitions, using the kind of weaponry we did, relying on air power in a way that was so imprecise and brutalizing. And then look at the planning, just the, the idea of withdrawal, not just its execution, but the whole absence of diplomacy, of coordination, of really thinking through what this would do to Afghans across the board. And so even if you're someone who did not take part in the so-called republic you know, that I identified, even if you imagine you know, you're a sheep herder in a rural province, you're now facing drought, you're facing economic collapse, you're facing COVID, and all this will worsen because of the path chosen by American elites, put it that way broadly, to make it more bipartisan. It's a bipartisan and um, multinational failure here, right? So the outcome of all this is we'll just have stunning effects across society. So I know it can sound surreal and, and perhaps disingenuous to talk about Afghan women and girls, because of course we all remember that that was one of the justifications offered for the war in the first place. 
So that's, of course, a very problematic notion, but it's also real in this context. So I have colleagues, you know, my friend on the left, who say they're very much anti-empire, and this is a colonial war. That's very true, and I, I emphasize that in my classroom, but I also look at, you know, the, the photographs of these passports, you know, these women staring at me, their homes are being searched. Some of them were journalists. The Taliban are, are hunting them. The Hazars are being hunted, and tens of thousands of them were killed en masse in 1998. They remember that, you know, that the society is traumatized. So I think we're all reeling and really in shock that the Taliban are back and that they have not changed. And so the, the moral conversation that we Americans need to have is one in which it has to be informed by listening to Afghans. And so I applaud your attention to this. I think it's just the ethical issues are, are enormous. And I fear that once the cameras withdraw and the airport returns to whatever it will be or become something else, I fear the Taliban will find the space to enact the kind of system that they want. And that will have to rely on brutal forms of violence, unfortunately. Just to close out this conversation, of course, the main reason that the United States went to war in Afghanistan, invaded Afghanistan in 2001, was to basically attack al-Qaeda and prevent al-Qaeda-like terrorist organizations from using Afghanistan as a home base into the future. Has that part been accomplished? No, no. And I defer to my counterterrorism field experts. That's not nearly my area of expertise, but I think Students of Al-Qaeda will tell you, no, Al-Qaeda is still present. And now Islamic State, Khorasan province is obviously present in some form or another, right? To, to go back to Sarah's question, in some form or another, there are even other groups. And then broadly, what the Taliban have done with Pakistani support is embolden radical groups in Pakistan. Hamas sent greetings and congratulations to the Taliban upon their arrival in Kabul. So many of us who have been looking at modern Islamic movements, politics across the globe, focusing on, on Muslim societies, the wind and the sails of jihadist movements had really been growing weaker in recent years. So the Islamic State phenomenon has become far less popular. You know, it doesn't inspire young kids in Europe, the United States, in the way it did. But this is a new chapter now. This is a new chapter. And so there are al-Qaeda and other groups on Afghan soil. So when Biden tells us it's mission accomplished. Unfortunately, that doesn't square with the evidence. What we see today is an appeal to, I think, what the Biden administration calls over-the-horizon counterterrorism, which means drone strikes launched from the UAE or somewhere. But you know, your listeners will know the geography. They'll know that that's contingent upon either Pakistani or Iranian permission. I think we're also savvy enough to know now that the Pentagon has not been honest about what drone strikes are. And now we're waiting for confirmation even about the most recent drone strike, I think, yesterday or the day before in Kabul, which may have killed a family of six or more, including a number of children. So drone strikes do not make for effective counterterrorism. It's a cliche, but when you kill a civilian, what's to prevent a family member from joining the struggle against those who murdered their relatives? So we risk engaging in cyclical forms of violence that go on without end. And that's the real danger here. And unfortunately, the combination of Trump's policies and Biden's policies have really painted the national security establishment into a corner. There are no good counterterrorism options in Afghanistan at present. The over-the-horizon policing is, I think, a pipe dream. There'll be no embassy. There'll be no on-the-ground intelligence. The only way to go forward, Galen, just to end on a more positive note, is that I think the time for diplomacy is well overdue. And I think agreement about counterterrorism could be a platform around which Islamabad, Tehran, Washington, whoever sits in Kabul, the Central Asian neighbors, Beijing and Moscow could all meet 
and attempt to find some common ground on. Because I, I don't think this will be something that can be done via drone or via CIA being dropped into Afghanistan. That's just unrealistic if you just look at the geography realistically. So I think we have a lot of our mistakes to consider over the last 20 years. But I hope now people also listen to what listen to what Afghans want. Because I think that the greatest frustration for my friends and colleagues is that this all seemed to take shape without considering what Afghans wanted. And I think that's the conversation that we really haven't had yet. And of course, to go back to Nathaniel's point, Afghans have wanted different things. So there's no single voice. There's no single demand that, that Afghans want. But I think they feel very much sidelined by these great power politics and now by the rival of the Taliban who are not really interested in popular opinion. You know, I think their lesson is that they can achieve their political aims by force. And there's nothing in place yet. There's no mechanism to force them to rethink that logic. And I think the only way to do that now, realistically, is via diplomatic intervention pressure. There are carrots and there are sticks. And I think those have to be brought to bear in a regional setting across multiple platforms at the UN, through the G7, through regional actors. And Washington, you know, again, having painted itself into a corner, has no option but to pursue that with renewed intensity because what's looming is a vast humanitarian disaster that will really affect all of us across the planet. All right, well, we're going to leave things there for today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Robert Cruz is a history professor at Stanford University. His focus is on Afghanistan and Central Asia. Let's move on and talk about how Americans are reacting to this withdrawal from Afghanistan. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. When we last talked about the Biden administration's approach to withdrawing American troops from Afghanistan, the chaos surrounding evacuations and the speed of the Taliban's advance was only just becoming clear. So now we have more information and have had more time to ask Americans what they think about what's happened over the past two or three weeks. So here's the question. What do Americans think about how the Biden administration has handled all of this? They do not feel like Biden has handled this well. So the most recent morning consult political poll found that only 24% of Americans believe that the withdrawal has gone very or somewhat well, and 67% think it's gone not too well or not well at all. Similarly, in YouGov, The Economist's latest poll, only 16% think that the withdrawal has gone well, and 68% think that it has gone badly. In terms of Biden himself and his personal approval rating of the issue, the YouGov Economist poll gave him only a 33% approval rating and a 50% disapproval rating on the issue. Nathaniel's absolutely right. The one thing I think is interesting in that is Americans still think it was the right decision to leave Afghanistan when you also ask that in a question. Support has ebbed and flowed since April when it was first announced. And I think also in light of the attack at the airport last week, you'll probably see, you know, public opinion on that dip back down again. But in general, it's kind of like 
Americans are both able to distinguish that the withdrawal itself is going badly, but they still support the decision to be leaving Afghanistan. Yeah, just to put some numbers on that. So the Morning Consul political poll still found 50% of people support the withdrawal, only 39% oppose it. And that is decreased from how it was before when strong majorities supported the withdrawal. But even now, the majority still supports it. And actually, that same poll is kind of an interesting aside, but that same poll experimented with a few different wordings and framings of that question. And one question actually asked, do you still support the withdrawal, even if it means that Afghanistan becomes basically like a safe haven for terrorists? And even in that scenario, 45% of people supported withdrawal and 40% opposed it. So I think that really does show the depth to which Americans are ready to get out of Afghanistan. Yeah, that stood with me too. I mean, I think it's important to caveat that that poll was conducted before the suicide bombing attack last week. So I think when Morning Consult or another pollster asks that question again, I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers fell a bit. But I think still to Nathaniel's larger point, like Americans are still supporting the decision to withdraw. So where does that leave Biden? You're telling me some pretty bad numbers given how polarized the country is, right? This means that there are lots of independents and even Democrats who are saying Biden isn't doing a good job on this. To put this in the context of his broader approval rating, which I mentioned at the top, at the beginning of the month, Biden was nine points above water with the public. He had a 52% approval rating and a 43% disapproval rating. Today, his net approval rating is basically even. So 47% approved, 47% disapproved. That's according to our averages. Is there a straight line between the declining views of Joe Biden and this Afghanistan withdrawal? It's definitely a part of it, but I think it's really hard to understand how much of it is just Afghanistan. Because consider that before the situation in Afghanistan had come to a head, Biden's approval rating had already fallen by about 2.5 points from the end of July to early August. And that was because of the Delta variant surging in the U.S. Jeffrey Skelly has done a lot of research here on the site, diving into other possible reasons. And so the Delta variant was a big driver, but it was also we've seen since early spring that numbers among independents and support for Biden has steadily been ticking down. It's unclear to what extent some of that is linked to the coronavirus or what's happening in Afghanistan, because part of that could be tied to the economy, which again is linked to the coronavirus. It's all linked in some way. But I think what's really hard with Biden's numbers right now is there's clearly a dip associated with Afghanistan here, but there's other factors at play as well, which makes it hard to understand how that's all working together. Yeah. So an Ipsos Reuters poll, they surveyed on August 13th, which was basically right before Kabul fell, and then Monday, August 16th, which was right after. And Biden's approval rating dropped seven points in that period. So I definitely think Afghanistan Whoa. has accelerated it. Yeah. But that, is that an outlier? Yes. Yeah. That's a particularly extreme example. Thank you for mentioning that, Galen. But I still think that if you look at the 538 approval average, you can really see his approval rating has been on the decline steadily for months, really, from his highs after he took office. But the difference between his approval and disapproval really just disappears in the last couple of weeks. And I think that the obvious explanation for that is Afghanistan. But yes, absolutely. I think there are more things going on. It's important not to, when we write the history of this era, not to say that, oh, Afghanistan tanked Biden's approval rating, because there's clearly more going on here. 
Yeah, I'd mentioned that 2.5 points, which kind of coincided with when the Delta variant was really surging in the U.S., so like late July to early August. And then since August 5th, there's been another three-point decline. And to Nathaniel's point, a large part of that coincides with what has happened in Afghanistan. But, you know, we're also tracking Biden's approval rating for how he's handling the pandemic. And he's always gotten higher marks on that question than his overall approval. But that's also slipped from the mid-60s to the mid-50s. So he's losing standing in terms of how he's also managing the pandemic. And that's a factor here. Yeah, I do want to take a bit of a step back. Amy Walter at the Cook Political Report had an interesting article about how for a president's first summer, there's always kind of something that shatters the honeymoon or the illusion of how well the new president is handling things. And it's not clear to me that if Afghanistan hadn't happened or if Delta hadn't happened, that Biden would still be riding high. It does seem like there's around this point in the calendar when people start to kind of see the flaws in the, the new president's leadership. Right. So there's a broader macro trend that like exactly. the honeymoon period does end. But still, I mean, these are some pretty serious events. Right. These specific reasons were still drivers, but there is also this broader idea that I think a president's approval rating is going to narrow as their term proceeds around the six, nine month mark. And I guess on that same note, you know, like one point we've made in both the Trump presidency, but then also in Obama's is given how polarized our country is, and that shows out in approval polls in terms of Democrats strongly back Biden, whereas Republicans don't, his approval rating shouldn't move that much either. You know, it's been about a five point window for both Trump and Obama. And presumably we'll also see Biden's approval rating moving in that narrow range. I realize right now, you know, it's towards the bottom of what we would expect, but then reason to believe that some of this is temporary. Yeah, I was going to ask, it seemed like early on in Biden's presidency, partisanship might have been preventing him from having even higher approval ratings. Like he was getting, as you mentioned, in the 60s, approval ratings on handling COVID, which was in many cases the biggest thing that people were dealing with in their daily lives. At this point in time, I'm hearing numbers like 30-something percent of Americans view Biden as handling the situation in Afghanistan well. Are we now seeing a situation where, like, actually polarization is helping Biden, preventing him from cratering? I mean, yeah, I think that is going to happen in this age by being stuck between two points. It gives you a high floor and a, a low ceiling. And I think that was true with Trump, too. He just flirted with the floor more often. And now we're seeing Biden do so. Well, we don't know where the, his floor is, I guess. But we're seeing him come down for the first time in his presidency. And it will be interesting to see where that goes going forward. Yeah. I mean, there seems to kind of have been two camps in this, right? In the sense that the criticism Biden has received, particularly from Congress, has been bipartisan. It's Democrats criticizing him. It's Republicans criticizing him. But Republicans are now kind of shifting the game where Biden not only did a bad job of managing the withdrawal, but it was a political act. They forget the history of, you know, some of this was living out things that Trump had promised during his presidency. Whereas I think Democrats are trying to thread this line of he didn't do a good job of managing the withdrawal, but it's still important that we left. And that was something we were saying at the top of this segment has borne out in the polls. Like Americans are making the distinction and overwhelmingly disapprove of how Biden handled it. 
but um, still think it was the right decision to withdraw. So, you know, it's a long winded way of saying, even though Democrats are unhappy, probably with how Biden has handled the withdrawal, they're still giving him the benefit of the doubt or they're not leaving him behind in terms of overall support. Whereas there's probably more shift among Republicans to the extent that there's still room to shift there, but then independence as well, a trend that we had already seen earlier this year. Also, perhaps in a way, you know, we've heard some Republicans calling for Biden and other members of the administration to resign or be impeached or something like that. Obviously, that kind of rhetoric can make Democrats rally around their own leaders perhaps more. I am curious, given that you said the majority or the plurality of the American public wants to leave Afghanistan and that this, unlike COVID, is we hope not something that is going to affect the daily lives, at least of Americans, in the sense that there's not a terrorist attack or something like that linked to terrorism in Afghanistan. Is this the kind of thing that's fleeting? How long are people going to be dinging Biden on this for months and years to come? What do we expect here? Traditionally, what we see with high-profile events, like what's happening in Afghanistan, is a large shift in public opinion, and then that fades over time. Think about what we saw in terms of support for the Black Lives Matter movement after Floyd's murder last summer. There was a huge spike in support for the movement, but then by a month later, I believe by mid-June, support for that had stalled. In theory, you should see a similar effect here where Americans are upset, giving Biden low approval ratings, but then a month from now, some of that fades. I think, though, Galen, you hit on the crucial question of right now, the situation is so intenuous in Afghanistan that if it descends into further chaos, if something were to happen on American soil, that, of course, we can't price in to what we would expect to happen in terms of the event fading and how that would affect Biden's approval. So I think we have to have a long time horizon on this. So reversion to the mean is absolutely a thing, and it wouldn't be shocking to see, assuming everything, you know, we exit Afghanistan as planned and American attention leaves Afghanistan. I'm not going to say that things will calm down in Afghanistan because of the conversation we just had. But it, it would definitely be possible for Biden's approval rating to recover, you know, back to the low 50s where it's been. But I also, I keep thinking about the Obama comparison instead, where we don't know what Biden's mean is that he is reverting to. This could be the reversion to the mean. And when you look at Obama, you know, he had this honeymoon period and then kind of dipped down and he was a fairly polarizing president with about an even approval rating for much of his presidency. And I could definitely see the same thing kind of happening with Biden, where maybe he settles into an average position where he's about 50-50 or 45-45 when factoring in undecideds. And it turns out that the 50s numbers that he had been experiencing up to this point were a honeymoon or at least kind of a mini-moon, the extent to which a honeymoon can exist in this polarized age. You mentioned, Sarah, that there are clear lines between the kind of criticism that the Biden administration is receiving from Republicans and from congressional Democrats. In this moment, what are the dividing lines? To what extent are Republicans making the argument that we shouldn't have left Afghanistan, period? Right. So that argument has been less popular. It's more so doubling down on this idea that Biden and his administration has really bungled the withdrawal. And I do think what's really problematic about this and why you've seen both Republicans and Democrats vocal in their criticism of Biden is he essentially is on the record promising that the kind of chaos that has ensued in the last few weeks would not occur as troops left. And then it happened. Like, that's difficult to have that on the record. And I don't think at the time 
time those statements actually got that much play. It's only here in the aftermath, as you would kind of expect. And so then House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, he's been really vocal in terms of his criticism of Biden. They're clearly making this into a play for the 2022 midterms, trying to paint this as a political decision to, you know, act in haste days prior to the anniversary of 9-11 and not really thinking about what the implications would be. And then you have Democratic Representative Seth Moulton and former 2020 Democratic primary contender, you know, also speaking out against Biden and even booked an impromptu trip to Kabul to assess the situation on the ground, saying that he had asked back in April that the administration be doing more to get refugees safe haven here in the U.S. And then there's larger, I think, and broader think pieces kind of diving into what did America even think they were going to accomplish in Afghanistan in the first place, returning back to our our first segment here, talking about, you know, the forever war and the inherent problems in that. It does seem as if Democrats are more so disappointed with how the administration has handled it, pushing that refugees be settled here in the U.S. quickly. But I think that is going to be a a fight as well, with some Republicans already pushing to not allow the resettlement of Afghan refugees here in the U.S. And you can see some Islamophobia cropping up in those arguments, similar to what we've seen with immigration and the rhetoric there. But Democrats writ large, I think, trying to make this more about Biden was faced with an impossible decision. It's still good that he ended the war there. But I think it's been hard for, you know, the administration, as I said earlier, like had to pass out talking points to Democrats in Congress because people weren't really sure how to spin this positively because it has been such a mess in terms of navigating the response there. Yeah, I agree with all that. I just put a little asterisk. I do think there are some elements of the Republican Party, particularly kind of the older wing, the you know neoconservative wing of the party that actually is arguing that we should not have left Afghanistan. So Mitch McConnell, for instance, he went on CBS News recently and he said, quote, we shouldn't have made this decision in the first place. We only had 2,500 troops there, a light touch, no chaos, not a single American soldier killed in a year of combat. So, you know, I do think there is a divide here between the Bush neoconservative wing of the party and the Trump younger wing of the party that has been anti-international intervention. Final question here. So we've talked about how Americans are reacting to this, how this is shaping their views of the Biden administration that will potentially have electoral consequences. We'll find out at some point down the road whether or not that's the case. But in the near future, as we head into September, during which Democrats plan to be very ambitious in trying to pass an infrastructure bill, a $3.5 trillion social spending bill, and also raise the debt ceiling and fund the government, is all of this awful month of August for Biden going to shape whether or not Democrats can get other legislation passed? I would say probably not. I think that a lot of the things you just mentioned are priorities for the legislators themselves. And so that they are going to continue to push to get them passed. And they almost see Biden as a a vehicle for that, given that they have a Democrat in the White House now. One way in which it could is maybe it emboldens certain wings of the party to stand up to kind of the Biden position um, by holding things up. We've seen this in recent weeks with the so-called moderate nine who extracted some concessions from Nancy Pelosi as regards the $3.5 trillion budget and the infrastructure bill. I think that a weakened president kind of politically approval rating wise is one that's easier to stand up to. You know, if you had, obviously this is an extreme example, but if you had a president with a 70% approval rating, I don't think anybody within their party would dare to stand up against him. 
Yeah, I agree that I think, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan will be very separate from what we see play out in Congress here in the fall. Though, to be clear, I think this is going to be another huge fissure point, both within the party, but then also leading into 2022 in the sense that right now all attention will be on this massive $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill focused on really big, ambitious legislative priorities for Democrats that then they'll pass through budget reconciliation. So meaning they won't need Republican support. And so I I think that talking point in particular for Republicans will be where they zoom in. So you can see it building upon their Afghanistan point, maybe trying to drum Democrats for those two issues moving into 2022. But I think them being pretty separate. It's worth noting the $3.5 trillion budget and the infrastructure bill are both very popular with the American public. So that might not be as successful of a tactic. Well, we'll see. I I think we should put an asterisk on that in the sense of, you know, bill's still not written. And Mm -hmm. we also know, too, like there's going to be a lot of fighting among moderate Democrats about how to get that through. But I also think, you know, Republicans will try to launch on to fears around the deficit. And yes, right now, Republicans are more animated by that than Democrats. But across the board, when you ask about like just prices being up and divorcing that from inflation, Americans writ large are a bit more concerned than they have been. And so I think, you know, there are risks. But to your point, Nathaniel, a lot of what is in that bill is really popular. I think Anytime there's a lot of conflict, though, over a bill, and as we've seen with political science research, you know, voters often like the party till they pass laws, which is really counterintuitive and uh, seems a little unfair for lawmakers, but I think just opens up a lot of challenges potentially for Democrats. Yeah, I've wanted to actually bring this up as part of a good use of polling or bad use of polling segment, and maybe we'll get to it in the next couple of weeks. The polling actually on this $3.5 trillion bill is really kind of all over the place because there's so much in it and you can ask the questions in so many different ways and the questions end up being so long and whether you include certain trade-offs or not is another question. Like actually polling something this big that involves so many distinct policies seems like a challenge. And maybe we can talk about that on a future episode, in fact. But let's leave things there for now with that cliffhanger. Get excited for that good use of polling or bad use of polling. Thank you, Nathaniel and Sarah. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.